Today on Government Matters, the final phase for the government buying makeover some people thought would never happen. The leader of the General Services Administration schedules consolidation on what's coming next. Prepping for summer disaster season in the middle of the COVID crisis. Former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson on managing multiple responses at once. And the people problem behind the government's cutting edge technology challenges. Thomas Soderstrom with the Jet Propulsion Lab on cracking the code on personnel. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The General Services Administration is headed to the next phase of its multiple award schedule consolidation in July. That phase will include consolidating multiple contracts into one single contract. Stephanie Shudd is director of the Multiple Award Schedules Program at the General Services Administration. Stephanie, welcome. Before we get to what's happening in phase three, give me a little thumbnail of what you've gone through through phases one and two. Well, first, thank you for inviting me and having me here today. Um, for this project, which we did break into three phases, mainly because of the magnitude of it, we finished phase one on time um, on October 1st, actually a day early on September 30th, uh, where we released the new solicitation. And basically that happened at the same time as retiring the 24 legacy solicitations at the same time. And this allowed us to have all new contractors come on board under this new solicitation. We're currently in phase two, and phase two started at the end of January. And what that looked like is moving all of our existing contractors to that solicitation and getting them all on the same contract. We're currently at 90% of getting these contractors over. And what this will do is it's going to make their terms and conditions um, consistent across the boards, and it's gonna migrate over their SIN structure to the new SIN structure that is a make space. And then starting at the end of July, early August, we're gonna begin phase three, first with our acquisition workforce, and then we're gonna dive into it with industry. What will the acquisition workforce do in phase three and what will industry do? So for the acquisition workforce, it's mainly getting them trained on working with industry to get them down to one contract. Um, that's gonna require them to do a plan that's going to be identifying which contract needs to be their basically go forward with new work contract and which contracts we're gonna start phasing out and then what modifications are gonna to need to happen so that we can move those special item numbers and their offerings to that contract for a single solution contract. And then we can go ahead and have them start canceling their old contracts that they don't need anymore mm -hmm. um, based on what kind of work they have against them. Cause we definitely don't want them canceling any contracts that have work against them that need to be alive. What does industry need to do or what do you need to do with them to get them to understand what's coming down the road? Or are we at a point now where you've already given them the resources they need and they just kind of have to go along for the ride? I think it's a bit of both. We've given them a lot of resources. I don't think we can communicate enough though. I think there's gonna be some handholding, especially with companies that have extremely complex offerings. We also understand that there's a lot of blanket purchase agreements and those require a live contract against. So there's gonna be some companies that are gonna be living in this kind of in-between world 
for probably up to five years. And that's something we've just got to make sure that everyone understands how to handle and how to make sure everyone's bidding correctly going forward. What will companies see differently on any deals that they're trying to do after phase three is finished, whenever that is? How will this look different on the back end? So on the back end, what it's going to look like is we're going to have people more consciously move uh, which contracts are going to bid forward with. Um, that probably will start a little bit during the beginning of phase three, but it probably won't really get going until fiscal year 2021 when everyone's got their plans in place and have started actually doing that work. Uh, but a lot of that is getting contractors to a point where they know that they only have one contract that they're dealing with. They don't have to pick which ones. They don't have to team with themselves. They don't have to go around all these ribbons and red tape to make sure that they can get the offer of solution what they need to provide. They've got one place with one vehicle with one solution that they can bring forward. Makes it clean, makes it simple, makes it consistent. The situation that you and your colleagues are fixing didn't start out this way. I don't imagine at some point in history, somebody said, let's introduce 24 vehicles. How do you keep this from getting back to where it was at some point in time? How do you keep people focused on we're only doing one moving forward? We're not going to add one at some point in the future just because some reason that somebody gives. So a lot of that is just changing mindsets. Um, and I think a lot of that has changed over time. A lot of that happened because people became so frustrated with the duplication and inconsistency of the current program. And that's what happens when people work in silos. That's when people try and help others in silos. It's always those best intentions that happen. Um, but we also had a lot of things like paper contracts back then, and we weren't doing things electronically. So there was a lot of little barriers that added to the problem. Now that we have electronic contracting and everyone's working together and we've started to break down those silos and work as an enterprise, I don't have a lot of fears that the same issue will happen. Now that's not going to say something else couldn't happen, mm -hmm. but we'll come against that when we see that happen. Is it possible that there might be some kind, and I don't know what this looks like, but is it possible there might be some kind of incentive necessary to make sure that people continue to do the right thing, just as there sometimes is a stick when somebody doesn't do the right thing? Um, I think it's always best to have an incentive when you're doing the right thing, uh, mainly making things easier for everyone around, making things easier for our customers, making things easier for industry, and making things easier for our workforce. If it's easier for everyone, people are gonna go that direction. If you make things difficult or people have to go through barriers to get things done or it's just overly complicated that you have to take hours of training to figure something out, that's when you're gonna see programs diverge and you're gonna see different options start to happen mm -hmm. instead of people working together. What are the markers that you're going to use, Stephanie, to determine, all right, you go into phase three in July, to determine when we get to January or next July or whatever, that you're on the right track for phase three, that this is going the way you want it to? So a lot of that's gonna be how many plans are in place and how many contractors we've gotten down to one contract. So we've got some easy wins that we're gonna have in there. We have some contractors who do have multiple contracts, but their extra contracts have no sales on them yet. So getting those contractors down to one um, by early next fiscal year, um, it's going to be a definite win and we're gonna see that this is working. And then once we have plans in place and they're all on that contract file and people are working towards those plans and people are actively still getting work and bidding and 
our business volume is continuing to grow. If all of those markers are hitting the nail on the head, we're going to be right on the track for success for this. Stephanie Schott of the General Services Administration, thanks very much for coming on. Appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Up next, telework and the COVID pandemic. What happens when another crisis hits? Straight ahead on Government Matters, former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson on balancing priorities and keeping people safe. You're watching ABC7. The hurricane season this year could be worse than normal, and those storms couldn't come at a worse time. Many agencies across the country still have their office doors closed because of the coronavirus. The Federal Emergency Management Agency has new operational guidance for agencies and plans in place for the start of hurricane season. Jay Johnson is the fourth Secretary of Homeland Security. He served from 2013 to 2017. Mr. Secretary, thanks very much for coming on the program. I think people like me who are focused Thanks, on ourselves in Washington forget 85% of the federal workforce works outside of DC. What does that look like in your view when agencies across the government, both uh, your former agencies and others are preparing for this hurricane season in the context of the pandemic, sir? Good question, Francis. If I have to say, um, I've been out of office three and a half years now. If I tomorrow morning woke up and found Secret Service agents posted at my door to say, sir, it's all been a dream. You're still in <laughs> office. We're driving you back to work this morning. One of the first things I would do when I got there is focus on this exact question. DHS in particular is a government agency where most of its 230,000 people live and work outside the Washington area in South Texas, in California, uh, in the Great Lakes area, in Florida, through the Coast Guard, Border Patrol, FEMA, and the like. And I'd want to know, given all we've been through with COVID over the last three months, that the organization, DHS and FEMA in particular, is ready for this hurricane season. In the Atlantic area, it started on June 1st. And as you alluded to, uh, the predictions are that this hurricane season will be uh, worse than average. And so I want to make sure that we're ready and that we're adequately funded, that disaster relief fund is adequately funded, and that we've got our eye on the ball. You mentioned a number of the different components of DHS there, Jay, uh, the Coast Guard, military organization, some of the law enforcement organizations inside the agency, and then some of the more traditional civilian type components. What do you see as the, the, is it necessary for each of those organizations to prepare differently, to be ready to respond differently in the context of COVID-19? Yes, it is, because they reside throughout the country in different places in the country. Uh, COVID is at a different stage of, of the spread and the recovery in different parts of the country right now. Culturally, these agencies are, are vastly different. FEMA is very different culturally from the Secret Service, from the Border Patrol, from Customs, uh, from enforcement and removal operations, and the like. 
And so I think each component of DHS, I would look to to make sure that they are adequately prepared in their own respect, uh, but with the proper cabinet level oversight. The time uh, is, is upon us too, where the organizations will be looking at their relationships. What's your sense of the best way for organizations to manage those relationships, to strengthen those relationships? I'm thinking in particular FEMA's relationships at the state and local level. Uh, same thing with the other organizations that we talked about. But is this different managing them in a COVID environment, Jay? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, in, in an organization like DHS, with a less mature bureaucracy and command and control structure than say the Department of Defense, you have to continually focus on the things that most secretaries wouldn't need to be focused on. So I spent a lot of time in my time in office at DHS simply focusing on unity of effort. Because so many of DHS workers have been working remotely, I'd be very concerned that they become somewhat detached from the larger mission. And with COVID in particular, a lot of that is working with state and local governments. A lot of disaster relief, as you know, Francis, is working with state and local governments. I'd be concerned that uh, because of COVID, because of the remoteness, uh, we'd have to really double down to make sure we've got that right. We just have a little bit more than a minute left, and I want to mention a post that I saw on the Lawfare blog not too long ago, Mr. Secretary. You wrote a tribute to Charles A. Allen, and you wrote about him as a presidential rank award winner serving four administrations, eight secretaries of defense. Why did you think it was important to write about him, and why did you think it was important to pay tribute also to some of his colleagues inside the Defense Department, Jay? You know, and back here in private life, I often think about the terrific public servants I work with at DOD, at, at DHS, uh, who are there working long hours through difficult times. And I singled out Chuck Allen because he's been the deputy general counsel of DOD now for 20 years. Chuck has seen virtually every national security crisis of the last 20 years and has managed the legal aspects of it. And to me, he's the finest, one of the finest examples I know of, of a federal civil servant. And very often people like that are overlooked by the public at large. And so I wanted to single out Chuck as somebody who's an example of people who, who write the ship day to day there in the Washington area. Jay Johnson, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it, sir. Thanks, Francis. Up next, recruiting and retaining top talent for IT. Straight ahead on Government Matters, solutions for finding and keeping America's best. You're watching ABC7. A new pay and personnel system could help fix the government's IT recruiting problem, according to the Chief Information Officers Council. Recruiting and retaining the IT workforce has been one of the top challenges for information technology professionals across government for a long time. Thomas Soderstrom is IT Chief Technology Officer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Thomas, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What are you seeing workforce-wise? What do you need and what are you getting in the workforce that you have, in the workforce that you're bringing into JPL, and in the people that are there that you want to keep? 
Um, it, it's a very pertinent question. So you have to look at this new skills that we're going to need and the existing skills that we have and marry the two. So you get this dual mentorship going. So about seven years ago, we realized that we were going to be left behind in technology, way behind. The things that were coming were new technologies and new skills we needed, like Internet of Things, um, cloud computing, uh, advanced networking, visualization, analytics, uh, and then machine learning to tie it all together. So how do you get those skills? So we realized that uh, we could buy them, but they really were so new. They weren't many experts. So we decided to get in very skilled interns, uh, hire the best of them, and then let them bring in interns and hire the best of them. And we hired for the specific skill sets, but also for being able to collaborate. And in our world, of course, an extreme passion for space. Then we married them, so to speak, with the, ex the domain experts, scientists, engineers, and that turned out to be a very good mix because you have new people coming with new skills, very eager, and you have experienced people trying to solve a real business problem. And this two-way mentoring happened. It wasn't threatening to either side and both sides benefited. Seven years ago and today it's up and running and working. And the last piece was make it an exciting workplace. So we built a little startup lab and uh, thought of it as a startup and creating that energy that you need and then the final piece of the puzzle is to experiment your way towards success, to have some quick successes. If you're looking at the list that you just laid out, if you're looking at those things seven years ago, you anticipated very well, Thomas, what people would be thinking about today. Those are all the technologies that agencies across government are thinking about and working about. Tell me about your experience deploying cloud computing at JPL and how that what you learned from that, maybe that you'd do differently if you were starting over today? Okay. Um, so there are a couple of enablers to all this. Uh, one is the skill set, right? We talked about that. The other one is having business problems that you can solve. And then the technology enablers turns out to be the network. And now we're getting 5G, uh, Wi-Fi 6. Wi-Fi 6E is very exciting. And in 2030, we'll have Wi-Fi uh, 6G. So the network is really key and the cloud computing ties it all together. So what we did is we started experimenting with cloud computing and we used many different vendors and being able to, the thing that's different that I would do differently is to start on something simple, start on something where we can cut our teeth on, implement these skills, and then expect that innovations will come that we don't have to invent. That's a really big deal. Cloud computing means you don't have to own it, you can rent it. And when you're tired of renting it, it's not a lease, you just stop paying. So having a secure place to do this, uh, like uh, in our case, ITAR is a big deal. That's uh, uh, international traffic and arms regulations. Others have HIPAA, et cetera. So in a regulated environment, if you can have that handled, now you have an innovation sandbox where you can implement and try all these skills. So trying something new, Try, that's not been done before. Don't go for legacy, it's too complex. Learn your skills on the simple things, have quick successes, and then partner with the end users that have the problem to solve and let them get the credit, let them be the hero, let them demo it. And if it's in the cloud, this is one thing we learned, we would take all these little demos and people would get excited and then we would want to show it to an executive, but they were using that laptop or something else, it was gone. In the cloud, it can just sit there and persist and you just demo it when you're ready. 
So sow multiple seeds and then wait to see which ones sprout. And that becomes the focus area. So it's really about uh, passion. It's not a return on investment to start. It's on return on attention. If I can get attention from one end user and then another, it's going to be a safe bet to go for the investment. We have about a minute left. JPL is doing some work with digital assistants. What's the role for a digital assistant in working with somebody in your organization, Thomas? So our vision is that everybody will have their own intelligent digital assistant. Whether it's a chatbot or robotic processes, uh, automation is the same. It, it solves the problem. So you should be able to ask it any question and you should be able to be hands-free so you can speak to it. Imagine in a clean room or any place where you need to be hands-free and you can get any information you want out of the system. And because it knows who I am, how long I've worked there, what work cycle we're in, it can tell me what I need to know when I need to know it. So the hands-free part is important, but being able to get have a conversation with a complex system. The more complex the system, the more you need to simplify it with natural user interfaces. So I think that's the big goal for a digital, intelligent digital system, and it's coming. We've already built a few, and it's very, very uh, big return on investment. Thomas Soderstrom at JPL, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Great conversation. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every one of our newscasts by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 22828. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.